You are listening to the Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beej, the advancing journeyman developer. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash complete developer podcast. I am the law. We've brought on lawyer Gary Nissenbaum to discuss the law in the context of software development. We'll delve into common legal mistakes developers make, then have a longer discussion about intellectual property and licensing around using open source. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Well, uh, in addition to your intros, I had a uh, I had a very funny situation happen to me Friday night. It was shocking when it first happened, but then it was kind of funny after the fact. I tend to step late on Friday nights a lot and kind of work on content for the podcast and other stuff. And a little after midnight, I was like, "Okay, I'm I'm gonna go to bed." And I, you know, thought I'll hit the bathroom down here so I don't wake Kathleen up, and then I'll go upstairs. And while I was in the restroom, out of the corner of my eye, I saw movement, and I looked over, and a snake came under the bathroom door and it's black and red and I'm looking at it and I'm like well it could be a king snake or it could be a coral snake and I'm trying to remember the little stupid rhyme that we were taught as a kid as kids and I'm looking at it and it's you know it's like four inches long it comes up there and I kind of kick at it to try to run it away and it you know it kind of coiled up and struck at my shoe and I'm like oh man he's aggressive finally scared it off you know caught it in a wastebasket, had to go and, you know, go to Google Images and try to figure out what this thing was. And it was actually a, a scarlet king snake, which was a relief. So don't you mean uh, sending me a video of it? Yeah. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> like, what is this? <laughs> yeah. I was like, uh, I, I sent it to you and I sent it to a, you know, a couple messages to other friends of mine that, you know, might know off the top of their head because I just I was racking my brain I couldn't remember it you know I finally figured out okay this thing's not poisonous and I caught it and took it you know dumped it outside my wife was irritated that you know she's like why didn't you kill the snake you know like we we don't need that around here and I'm like well he's you know it's not poisonous he's just doing his thing you know so that's uh, just an example of the serious mortal hazards that we uh, run into as podcasters <laughs> um, <laughs> How about you, Gary? Well, first of all, I want to say hello to all your listeners. Uh, I'm really honored to be on this podcast, and and thanks for the opportunity. I'll tell you that you know how it is when you have a uh, dysfunctional relationship, and every time you come home uh, in the evening, you have the same argument over and over and over again. I am in that, and I can't get out of it. And basically, it's an argument that I'm having with a woman named Siri, (laughs) and every single night you know what she says to me she says that she wants me to update my ios to to, to 10.3.3 and and i want her to have a little screen that says no there's no such thing the screen says later and so when you click later then it says will you remind me later which means we're going to have the same stupid argument over and over again every single night. So the next night and the next night and the next night, it just never stops. And uh, I understand that there's going to be an iOS 11, and that's great. But now, as I understand it, that that might not work with all of my apps. And I'm, I mean, I don't mean my apps for social media. I'm talking about things that I need for the security of my law firm, like AuthAnvil and things like that. 
So I just have a feeling that I am caught in a dysfunctional relationship. But you know what I do uh, at the uh, after I get through this and I'm all uh, frustrated and I want to listen to some music? I go to my other little friend, Alexa, and she knows just what to play for me. And she just, everything becomes <laughs> smooth and I'm soothed and everything's wonderful. So that, 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 that is my life these days. That's, that's awesome. My mom actually has the uh, iPhone 4, which when we got it for her was, she had the newest phone of the entire family. She was so proud and she hasn't gotten a new one since because she's so proud that she had the newest phone in the family at one point in time. <laughs> right. Planned obsolescence, that's what they call yes. it. Yes. So, my life uh, the past couple of weeks has been all meetings. We're about to start the next phase of a project at work, so we've been in planning meetings, getting ready to build an inspection piece to go along with the online registration that we built earlier this year. Less fun note, I have a stress fracture on my left second metatarsal to get all go full med student, so to speak. Or if you wanted in uh you know, my my form of speech, he done broke his foot. <laughs> yeah, wow. pretty much. <laughs> Basically that's the bone that connects to the second toe on my left foot has a very small fracture from overuse. And as you guys know, I have uh been trying to lose some weight. That was one of my goals for this year. So I've been doing more walking and I actually started doing some jogging, which uh, I think I stepped on something, maybe an acorn or a rock when I was out jogging with my dog. And uh, so, yes, I broke my foot exercising and uh, I'm going to be in a boot for the next four to six weeks. That said, though, thank you. That said, though, I have something uh, that kind of relates to medicine, exercising and the law. So let's go ahead and play the music. This week for IOTs, I have an article from IOTlaw.com titled, Wearable Technologies Change Due to New Medical Device Regulations. With the prevalence of devices like Fitbit and smartwatches tracking vital signs and other medical information, they're starting to be considered medical devices. This article discusses the new European regulations on medical devices. Now, most of these regulations focus on devices that are already considered medical you know, some accessories not previously considered medical, though, may now be classified as such. According to one regulation, which is Directive 2007-47-EC, and I'm quoting here, Software, when specifically intended by the manufacturer to be used for one or more of the medical purposes, is a medical device. Now, these medical purposes include diagnosis, prevention, monitoring, treatment, or alleviation of injury, disease, or disability, as well as investigation or modification of anatomy or physiological processes. And this even includes birth control. So it's a pretty neat article. I suggest you guys go take a look at it just to kind of get a better understanding of where some of the wearable technologies are going. And I'll include a link to that in the show notes. Will, who's talking to us this week? 
Uh, well, we grabbed a tweet from Brandon Paget. Says, do you guys have your processes and tools documented anywhere for time management goals and tasks, etc.? You want to answer this one, Beach? Yeah, I'll go for it, Brandon. That is a great question. We've been talking about writing some blog posts with that specific information that goes kind of beyond what's covered in each episode. We're also building some additional training materials that'll be coming out next year. I will suggest that you check out our weekly emails because they include more information than is even in the show notes. And uh, you can look at those as well because sometimes when we talk about a thing on the show, especially like how to plan or how to use a spreadsheet for planning, we'll include links or even images to describe what we're talking about in the show notes. But uh, we really want to thank you for the tweet and send us a direct message or email with your address because we've got a complete developer water bottle just for you guys if you'd like your very own complete developer water bottle leave us a review on itunes or comment on the website or any of our social media we post all our episodes to facebook twitter linkedin and google plus we're also on path and tumblr and now you can check out our complete developer network slack channel to join the conversation, go to the Slack sign-up on our website. Gary Nissenbaum is a managing attorney with the Nissenbaum Law Group. The Nissenbaum Law Group is a boutique law firm with offices in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Texas. It has an emphasis in business law, including internet, app, video gaming, and entertainment matters. The firm's clients range from true e-commerce websites to brick-and-mortar companies that utilize a website solely as an adjunct. It handles a range of internet law matters such as drafting electronic contracts, protecting against universal jurisdiction, addressing privacy issues, and attending to the internet's distinct intellectual property concerns related to copyright and trademark. The firm also practices in the related field of technology law, such as representing software development and technology companies, including those that sell computer-based technology worldwide. The firm has handled matters that involve software development and digital technology projects in many regions of the United States, as well as in Europe, the Middle East, and Asia. Also, I want to point out that Gary is a published mystery novelist, Tai Chi instructor, and a huge Star Trek fan. TOS. And, uh, Star Trek TOS, my friend. Oh, That's TOS. Yeah, let's be clear. <laughs> all right, all right. So I, I have to ask, I've really gotten into the new show, The Orville, and I know I didn't tell you about this up front. Uh, have you seen that show? I have not. Tell me about it. All right, it's, it's Seth MacFarlane from uh, Family Guy, American Dad, and in my opinion, it is his attempt at moving from comedy to serious. So it's kind of a, a comedy version of Star Trek. But it, they cover some serious stuff. Uh, it's two episodes out, and I'm hooked already. There was a movie. It's, it's really good. There was a movie uh, like that, was there not? Um, yes, yes, there was. Galaxy um, Quest, I think it was called. Yeah, that was a great movie. Right. I, that I enjoyed, so I will definitely check that out. Thank you. Yeah. So before we get started, I usually like to ask our guests how they got into programming. However, given that you're a lawyer, that doesn't exactly apply to you, so... How did you become interested in law, and specifically in law related to technology? Well, I've been an attorney for over 30 years, and in that entire time, I have concentrated my practice in commercial law, business law. When I opened this firm, and we're now at sort of a fluctuating number, about eight lawyers or so, it was right around the dot-com boom in the late 90s, and we go where the clients take us. 
So if, co- if the commercial transactions and the commercial litigation that's going on uh, nationwide is digital, digitally oriented, then that's where we're going to go. And we sort of worked in that field easily for the last 20 years. A lot of what we've done is we've evolved as attorneys. So in the 90s and the early 2000s, we might be involved in purchase and sale of a business and, uh, and non-disclosure agreements, copyrights, trademarks, things like this, the very basic, basic things you need for this world. We are moving now into far more sophisticated realms. Uh, we do a huge amount of work with apps, video games, uh, entertainment law, a lot of it having this sort of intellectual property aspect to it that really is so important. And I will tell you that uh, we've learned a lot from our IT clients. And if I could just take a moment and give you one example, which I think your listeners might find interesting. Please um, do, Yeah. <laughs> We were involved in a major project in which we were essentially keeping everything organized from the perspective of the uh, legal documents that had to be in place in the different time periods. So we would attend the scrums that were being done to put together the software uh, on a massive scale. This was a this was $24 million project. And we watched our IT client conduct these scrums and we saw a whole new way of managing people and managing projects. And we began to understand that there might be an overlap, that a law firm might have its own scrum. And because there's a lot of things that we do that are similar in terms of large transactional projects and large litigation matters that have a lot of moving parts and and we have to have the team all going together at the same time. And so at this point, we have a scrum every other day with some minor exceptions. And our scrums are the one difference we have from the way it's normally done in the IT world. I know the way you do it is uh, as quick as it can be done uh, within reason and then people get to work and so it's efficient. The way we do it is we want to go through every single case in the office, the whole thing. We have an Excel spreadsheet up and we're literally going right down the sheet and the entire team, all eight of us, are reporting on what we're doing, commenting on it, explaining some other cases or things we've done in the past or new developments in the law that we might use. And so you're literally going over the entire thing every 48 hours and it has revolutionized our practice. It's made us incredibly organized and incredibly focused, and we're ahead of the curve in so many ways. Lawyers are known for constantly asking for extensions and constantly, you know, uh, sort of being blindsided by deadlines and things like that, and and having to to run, you know, a hundred miles an hour to catch up. And that doesn't normally happen with us. With us, we're so far ahead of these deadlines because we're talking about them every other day, and it really has created a a wonderful morale in the office and uh, enthusiasm. So I have to tip my hat to the IT world and to the developer world and the people that do what you do because you got something really right there and I wish more lawyers would uh, take you up on it. I, I really enjoy the the scrum process. We do that where I work. Um, and uh, when we do scrum, we do the what I did yesterday, what I'm doing today, and what impedes me or keeps me from 
doing my job. Do you guys find that you're able to help each other out when you do that? Absolutely. And and the reason it works is that unlike a typical law firm in which you, let's say, have eight, eight uh, people who are going in different directions, somebody might be practicing matrimonial law, somebody might be practicing criminal law, and then somebody might be doing the commercial stuff. With us, since it's a boutique firm and we're focused in this area, this commercial law area, we all can be interchangeable in that way. We all can understand what's going on in all the cases and contribute. So whereas a transaction might have gone well, but now there's a problem with one of the parties and someone's going to sue, the people who are in our litigation department are basically aware of the case, have heard its entire anatomy and its arc and its evolution from the point where the contract was being drafted. And so when the contract is breached, it's not a big leap for a litigation person to step in. And then when a litigation person is settling the case, when it's over or about to be over, we bring that transaction transactional person in and they lend their transactional acumen to putting together a settlement that will um, hopefully be bulletproof or as bulletproof as we can make it. So it's that synergy that we're seeing with the Mm -hmm. scrum. Yeah, it sounds like you guys are doing like the the true scrum attitude, um, whereas within development, everyone is a developer, but with you guys, everyone is a lawyer. And like one person in de- the development world may be more of a front end developer, more of a back end developer, more of a quality assurance person, but everyone is a member of the same team of equals. And that's, that's really awesome. And not to belabor it, but then we, what we try to do is expand that to our clients. So the clients we have are, are savvy. They, they understand how to communicate with us digitally. And so what we, what we're, we try to do is, is have the clients not sort of be part of our scrum, but have a scrum with the client. So where we try to be reachable and have them uh, ask us questions and tell us where they are in the transaction. Let us tell them where we are in the transaction and and share documents and 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 share uh, even share computer screens with Skype and things like mm-hmm. that. So that we're sort of doing the same sort of thing, a little different, with the client in a collaborative way. That's really neat that you guys picked up something from development and were able to apply it to what you do as lawyers. That's yeah, That's and modify it to yeah. to fit that mold. I mean, you didn't just slavishly follow the way developers do it because you kind of have a you have a little bit more complex situation and a situation where things are a bit more permanent than software, and so you kind of have to spend a little bit more time up front. And it's good that you guys recognize that and were able to adapt it. To but fit my that. profession is becoming like your profession. We are your profession is in the lead, and so the very thing that you do, which is speed, for example, you know, you don't go from committee meeting to committee meeting to committee meeting before you know it. You don't even know why you're in the meeting or what the point of the meeting is. You're developing a web application. You're you're developing some code, and every all the parts have to be together. But you have a deadline, and it has to move. And you're not respecting um, state boundaries. You know, you're not respecting national boundaries. You're 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 getting a team together of people that are halfway around the globe. This is this is what the IT world has. Taught taught us is what what developers have taught us and a lot of of our law firm is patterned after that since a lot of the transactions that we're involved in cross state borders sometimes involve other others who are outside of the country and we can't do this in a slow plodding sort of 1950s way it's not it's not a button down way we have to be um nimble 
and we have to be moving as quickly as our clients and our clients are moving pretty quickly and and i must say the technology has helped us i mean i as i as you said in the introduction we have offices in uh, new jersey new york pennsylvania and texas well you know those those are not all contiguous states texas is a thousand miles away and yet we're able to seamlessly work the whole thing together because of digital technology without digital technology the firm would look completely different no, that makes that makes perfect sense. So, kind of jumping into things, what are some common misconceptions that developers have about lawyers? Well, I think that what they generally believe, uh, because people have told them this, is that lawyers don't understand business. I can't tell you how many times I have heard that. I hear it from accountants. I hear it from clients. You know that lawyers come in and the deal is killed. It's really the opposite. It's more along the lines of if if the deal gets killed, maybe that deal should have died. Maybe that deal was so dangerous that you were driving down the highway 100 miles an hour with a blindfold on. And yeah, you might have been able to to get to the finish line without a breach of the contract and some disaster happening, but it's unlikely. So. What lawyers try to do, what good uh, commercial lawyers especially, but other lawyers as well, try to do is make the deal happen, effectuate it, use creative ways of doing that. A lot a lot of what we're trying to do is collaborate even with the attorneys on the other side of the transaction. Not to say that we're taking their side, we're vigorous, we're aggressive, but, but the point is that if you have someone on the other side of the transaction who wants to get to the goal line and it's just a question of how we're going to get there and whose client is going to be advantaged by very various provisions in the contract, that's a, that's a good place for us to be. And that, that enhances the business. It doesn't hurt the business. Yeah. I've, I've had that experience before and I've heard, you know, I've heard people say the same thing, you know, it's, oh, the lawyers came in here and they, they screwed up this great deal we were going to have. And you know, they had all these objections and it's, it's sort of like a, uh, like a home inspection, you know, it's, it's like, you know, if they find mold and the, you know, the foundation's already cracking and it's starting to slide down the hill, like you don't want to buy that house. A lot of it comes down to humility. If a lawyer walks into a transaction and thinks that they know more than the client about the client's own industry, it really won't work. It's dysfunctional. You know, you have to have the humility that you, that you're asking questions, that you're listening before you speak. You know, there's an old saying, don't just stand there, do something. But in, in law, it's more along the lines of don't just do something, stand there, think, you know, don't react, respond. <clears throat> And that's yeah. kind of where we go with it. Yeah, actually, that reminds me of uh, what an attorney friend of mine told me. He was he was like, unless you are absolutely certain, you know, you don't you don't jump into the situation. You know, like you you stand and wait. Because he, he goes, you know, there's no deaf mutes in prison. Right. <laughs> and that's what he told me. He goes, you can go check. <laughs> that was his advice to me when I was young and a little bit more brash. <laughs> so it was actually pretty reasonable. So I guess the avoidance of mistakes is a big deal. So what's the you know, what's the biggest legal mistake that developers commonly make? Insurance. Insurance. I bet very few of the people listening right now thought I was going to say insurance. But the fact is that when we talk to developers who um, have their own business or even have their own business on the side where they have multiple jobs and things like that, and we ask them, are you insured for what you are doing? So many of them either are not insured or if they are, they don't know the terms of their own insurance policy. The fact is that that 
being a developer is a business. And people in America are subject to litigation for all sorts of reasons. You know, you were discussing a while back the fact that in Europe, you, certain coding would have to register if it's used for medical devices. And so you now, now let's say somebody has a heart attack and they're using a, a medical device that's supposed to um, monitor the heart and it, and it doesn't do it, or at least it's alleged, doesn't do it the right way. Well, the developer could be in that lawsuit. I'm not saying that the, the developer is going to be the primary target, but the normal way these things go is you bring in everybody in the what's called the chain of causation. So number one is getting the right insurance product and making sure that it applies to the things that you're doing. Second thing, I would say a big mistake is not reading contracts. You know, we're all used to the, you know, the I agree, I don't agree, and just click I agree and we move on. But the fact is that those are contracts you're binding yourself to. And I find that people generally, if they see a contract that is written in 10 point font and it's, it's not something that they, uh, that they can easily read because a lot of legal language, they just assume that somebody vetted it somewhere and it's fine. And it's not fine. And it has to be reviewed <laughs> and a lawyer should be looking at it. So my point is that, that you have to be careful. Because the thing that's going to get you is the thing that you didn't pay attention to. The thing you're focused on generally is not going to be the problem. I always tell people about the episode of South Park about the the EULA for the iPhone. And uh, where I think it's it's Kyle that uh, ends up getting... Uh, yeah, it's Kyle because his dad's a lawyer. Yeah, um, Where he gets in, ends up getting taken by, uh, by Apple and turned into like this the human centipede type thing and it's oh you signed you signed that you would let us do this <laughs> and you know the funny thing is that it, it's not so much that if you sign some kind of contract they call it a contract of adhesion where it was impossible to change it couldn't be negotiated you didn't really have an opportunity it's not that that there aren't defenses to it of course there are defenses and you might even win but by the time you get to court by the time you get to trial it's it's expensive, it's time-consuming, and, and even setting all that aside, it's draining. You know, I, I tell people, do you really want to be a professional client? I mean, don't you want to do your job and, and not have to worry about the things that I do? And, and in order to do that, it's so much better and so much less expensive to head off the problem by negotiating the contract up front than to sign something, and then the first time you look at the enforcement provisions is when it's breached. That makes perfect sense, and it really leads right into the next question that we had for you, which is, what are things about contract law that are not well understood by lay people? Well, th I'm glad you're asking me this, because this is really one of our pet peeves, is that is that people focus on price and, and payment and things like that, and they're not focused on some of what they consider to be boilerplate but it's really not boilerplate. So let me just jump in to, to one of the big ones, which is if you ask somebody, do you have a choice of law provision? Generally, they know what you're talking about. You're talking about the state's law that applies to this contract. So when it's enforced, it's under a certain state's law. When it's breached, it's in a, under a certain state's law. And we all understand that. But then when you ask them, do you have a jurisdiction clause? They have no idea what you're talking about. Ooh. And the jurisdiction clause is... As important as the choice of law, and it's different. It's not the same thing. A jurisdiction clause means that the person who signs the contract consents to the, to be subject to the jurisdiction of the courts of a particular state in a particular county, a venue, 
and that they will be served, let's say, this is a variation, by regular mail, not by hand delivery. So if I can't, if we, if, if we have a contract and we're in New York and it's all signed, it's all great. And then five years later, when it's being enforced, you know, all the parties are scattered around the country. What am I supposed to do exactly? Find the sheriff in each of those counties out in the Midwest or the South, and I'm supposed to then open a lawsuit there to have it served there. It's a very laborious process. And, and sometimes the client just can't afford it. And it's, it's a waste. So I should be able to have jurisdiction where I want it where the contract, let's say, was signed or, or, or some other reason that that, that that should be the venue. And then it's rock solid and everyone's consented to it. Another one is the difference between confidentiality and non-disparagement. Those are two different clauses and you have to understand the difference. Confidentiality means that you're going to maintain secrecy of certain information. And usually those are, are very broad provisions, uh, frankly, so broad that sometimes people don't even know what they have to keep secret. So that what they're told is just everything you learned here, keep it secret, which generally is, is really overkill. But there is something also called a non-disparagement clause. And non-disparagement means that you will not say anything negative about the other side of the transaction. And that's different than confidentiality. And in the age of social media, in the age of anonymous posting, in the age of the ways in which trolls can just destroy businesses, um, a non-disparagement clause is very important. And in fact, it's become a focus of litigation because there is a counter-argument to say that non-disparagement clauses should not be as broad uh, as we as we normally would write them because the counter-argument is that if somebody has a legitimate point that they need to make as a whistleblower, for example, or in the public interest, or they just want to exercise their First Amendment rights uh, and things like that, that the non-disparagement clauses sometimes can impede basic rights that, for example, employees might have in the workplace to talk about the conditions there. And so this is a very, very interesting and cutting edge area of the law. But again, these are, these are provisions of contracts which are misunderstood. They're not the same thing. Uh, liquidated damages. That's another one. I'm going to have to, to look into the, the non-disparagement because, you know, with having a podcast, you know, we, we talk heavily about what's going on in our personal lives. And a lot of our examples come from either current or previous jobs we've had so that's that's something we need, we should consider well I mean, you i'm need pretty to paranoid review, to review the contract that you that you signed do you do, do you mm -hmm. know all the contracts you, that you've signed in your career have you do you have a co copies of all of them uh i've got copies of most of mine over the last okay. uh eight or nine years good so yeah uh, that's important and that's that's not because i'm organized it's because i'm a pack rat <laughs> <laughs> well join the club because i'm one yeah. too uh, I'll give you one more, and then and then maybe we can move on. Uh, liquidated damages. Most people don't know what liquidated damages are. Basically, when you have somebody violate the law, you can have a situation in which the law is clearly violated, but there's no damage. And if there's no damage, then how do you have a remedy for that? And so, liquidated damages are where someone in the someone says, "Listen, if this is violated, here's what you have to pay, or here's the formula by which we'll we'll determine what the damages are, without regard to whether the actual damages." So, those are three that I think are important and are misunderstood. Okay, so can you explain a little bit more about how non-disclosure agreements typically work? Like, how's you know how is that all set up? One of the interesting things about contracts that people can waive their constitutional rights by signing a contract. 
if you if you ask a, a person in the street, you know, is it possible to waive your constitutional rights by signing a contract? Most people would say, well, I don't think so. That doesn't sound right. It's actually the, the other way around. You know, you have a First Amendment right to comment on things, and the government should not be stopping you from doing that. In this case, the government being the court system. But if you sign a contract that says that if I tell you about my idea, even though my idea is not developed to the point where I could copyright the code, or I could copyright the software, or I could copyright the, the book, it's just an idea. It can't be copyrighted. It's, it's obviously open to the public. So if I tell you, you could just take it. I understand that. You're signing a contract that says you won't do that. Copyright is, is expression of an idea that's being protected. Copyright is not the idea itself. And that's an important distinction mm. to make. So a non-disclosure agreement is saying, yes, as to the world, I cannot protect this idea as an idea without some expression. However, between two parties that are signing a contract, I can waive that right. And I can say, and you can tell me that you will not disclose what I'm about to tell you. Even though normally you could, you can't because you're signing this contract. And one more thing, which is if you have an organization sign a non-disclosure agreement, let's say it's a company and there's 13 people in the company, what you may want to consider, and, and I understand that sometimes it's just not feasible because you have unequal bargaining power, you know, you have you have somebody who's listening, but they don't even know what you're going to tell them, so they're not going to sign anything. I get it. Non-disclosure agreements are difficult to negotiate. However, in the right circumstances, if you can not just have the entity sign it, the entity that you're giving this information to, but also the individuals who are associated with that entity who will get the information, sign it as well, that is an added level of protection. So again, not always appropriate, but in the appropriate situation, it's a good idea. So is that is that basically just to make it easier to pierce the corporate veil? No, it, it's, well, it's for what if, what if they leave? What if somebody ah. moves on? So mm -hmm. the company or the company goes bankrupt or the company is dissolved. Um, I mean, I can sue the company all I want, but if it has no money, if it doesn't exist anymore, you know. So so in other words, all the protections I have are with the company, not with the individual. So I want the company to sign, but I also want another page in which the individuals bind themselves as well. Having said that, I know a lot of people out there are sort of rolling their eyes because in the real world, when you have a situation where you're disclosing an idea to somebody who you want to, for example, invest in your idea and that sort of thing, you don't have that kind of bargaining power always. And, and the idea that you're going to have 13 people sign it personally binding themselves might be pie in the sky. So believe me, I'm, I'm practical and I understand you can't always get that. But I just want to put it out there so that the people understand there is a difference. I, I understand that. That makes sense. Following along with this, what rules should developers follow to make sure they aren't violating their own employer's intellectual property rights? Well, first of all, let's let's go to the gold standard. You know, the best answer to that would be if you're in a situation in which your employer has no issue with you doing work on the side, so long as it doesn't compete with your employer, so long as it's not undermining your employer, certainly so it's as long as it's not a customer of your employer, obviously. Uh, but they're okay with you doing things on the side, and they tell you this. Get, get it in writing. 
prepare a contract and have them sign it, or at the very least, a strong, legally sufficient letter that they acknowledge. And because memories are short, and if somebody tells you that you're allowed to do moonlighting, you know, a year from now, when you're making a lot of money moonlighting, and the company is run by somebody else, or your manager has moved on, it's a new manager who may feel differently, it's going to be very hard for you to prove that anybody ever said that to you. So that would be the best, is have the employer actually consent to it in writing. The second best would be for you to review the contract that you're signing. If there's no contract, review the firm policies, look around you to see what kind of uh, situations other people are in, and if they are moonlighting, is it being done in secret? Are, you know, Is there a culture of this that's sort of under the radar? That's not a good thing, and you should be very careful of that because you could be pulled into something that could involve a, a mass lawsuit, frankly. So the bottom line is get the employer to give you a contract if possible, or at least a letter confirming that that you can do this. If you can't get that, read the contract you're signing, parse it out, possibly negotiate it when you um, when you take the job. And if none of that works, and they and the employer has a moonlighting policy where they don't want you to do it, the legal advice I would give you is, uh, even though this is not real legal advice, I'm being facetious, the advice I would give you is don't do it. Well, makes perfect sense. Um, speaking of, of moonlighting and side projects, what rules should developers have to protect their own intellectual property rights when they're working on side projects, aside from what they do for their employers? Well, let's talk about the one that people forget about first, and then we'll move to the ones that I think are the more obvious. The ones that a developer usually doesn't focus on when they have a project they're doing and they have people working on it, usually as independent contractors, sometimes as employees, is that they need to get what is called an assignment of all the right title and interest to the project and have that assignment given to them. Now, obviously, I'm, uh, nothing I'm saying tonight can be uh, seen as legal advice since I don't know what state the person who's listening to this is going to be in. But I certainly can tell you as a general principle that one of the quirks, one of the un, un, uh, misunderstood aspects of intellectual property law is that if you pay somebody to create something for you, such as uh, to code for you or to create a web application for you, you don't necessarily own it just because you paid for it. And that's, that's really important. If the person put the thing together, even if they were paid, it is not completely clear although it's likely, it's not completely clear that you own it just because you paid them for it. And so what we like to do is have people sign something called a quit claim assignment. And your listeners should write that down. Uh, look it up on the internet, a quit claim assignment. And a quit claim assignment is a, a large legal term for a very small thing, which is whatever I own, now you own it. So if I had a claim, I'm quitting my claim. That's really all it means. It used to be used in real estate when you would convey real estate and, and people didn't know exactly what interest they had, but they wanted whatever they had they wanted to convey. This is what we do with intellectual property now. So that's number one. And also your, your listeners should pay particular attention to, as long as we just raised it, whether the person working on their projects are independent contractors or employees. There is a major change in the way um, states are enforcing those regulations, um, determining who's an employee, who's an independent contractor. I'm assuming most of the people listening to this know exactly what I'm talking about. There is a move 
toward classifying people as employees unless there is clear evidence that they're an independent contractor and there's a test that's used generally for that. You have to pay attention to that because if you're paying somebody as an independent contractor without uh, taking out withholding, without having payroll, and it turns out they meet the test to be an employee, that can result in, in liability. Another thing is they have to have restrictive covenants for the people that work on this with them because they don't want to create their own competitors. And then the final thing, which I assume is what you were referring to, and we'll talk a little bit more later, is good, solid copyrights of the uh, software, of the web application, whatever it is you're creating, we want to copyright that code. And that's one level of copyright. And then another level of copyright is the graphics, the way the way the people uh, can see the work that you're doing when they open up a website. That is a separate copyright. And of course, uh, intellectual property also includes trademark which is how a product or a service is identified in commerce, and that should also be protected. So um, I guess since we you know, got into the trademarks thing, um, can you explain for the audience the difference between patents, trademarks, and copyrights? Because I know a lot of people get those really tangled up. Well, sure. And, and just to restate the, the basic premise that I think most people intuitively know, but let's just lay it out there. You're not obtaining federal registration of an idea. An idea is not something that you're protecting through a federal registration of a copyright or a trademark. What you are protecting, this is really important, you're protecting the expression of the idea through a copyright. You are saying that this idea that I have, and ideas are open to people, people can have the same ideas that I have, but the way that I'm expressing it, the way I am expressing it verbally, the way I express it through music, the way I express it through books, movies, and frankly, code, through apps, how the, the, uh, websites, that expression is what is being copyrighted. There is a common law copyright generally, again, this is according to what state's law applies, that you have, even if you don't register it in the, with the federal government. The, the thing is that if, if you don't register your copyright with the federal government, you don't have the enhanced rights that the copyright statute will give you. And that's really the whole key here is that you want to have enhanced rights. You want to be able to say, you know what, you, you violated my copyright and now what I want is I want my attorney's fees paid. I don't want to have to show that I that I had damages. I want the damages to be in the statute. I want the damages to be presumed, that sort of thing. And in order to do that, and if there's one thing you remember from this podcast, at least my part of it, that I want you to just drill a hole and just kind of fill it in with this information, it's really important. You should register your copyright with the federal government within th less than three months of publishing the copyrighted material. If you don't do that, if you miss that three-month deadline, you have a serious impediment to uh, asserting the copyright rights. You still may have your copyright, but the remedies are much less. And that's really important. Now, there are exceptions and there are other aspects to it. It's more complicated than that. But just focus on the fact that that in this one respect, the law has a really, really short time deadline. Setting that aside, uh, trademark is uh, how, how you're identified in the marketplace. Generally, there are states' rights of some type when you are uh, identifying yourself in business. There are common law causes of action you can have for unfair competition and, and trying to trick uh, customers into thinking that one business is another's that can be a consumer fraud. There's all sorts of things like that. But the, the tried and true 
the, the basic method of protecting this is a federal trademark registration with the federal government. And in order to do that, you know, what you need to do is you need to be aware that you're, you're trademarking something for a purpose. And this is a, you know, you talk about misconceptions people have. This is a big one. Lexus is a car company. Lexus is an information technology company. How is it possible that you can have a trademark for Lexus and Lexus? How can they both have trademarks? And the answer is, and this is the key, is that you're trademarking for a type of use in the commerce. So Lexus, the car company, is trademarking for using that name to sell cars and probably do attendant things that are involved with that. And Lexus, the IT company, is doing it for IT purposes and surrounding purposes like that, legal research, things like that. So that's an important thing. There is, and the word for this, if, if people want to get into it to this extent, the word for this is classification. The government has classifications for the trademark. And those classifications are the key to everything. Because if you're in the wrong classification, you're nowhere. And you could be classifying your trademark for something that you just don't do, which is a problem because you're telling the government it is something you do. <laughs> so that's a problem. But it's more it's also a problem because it's hard to enforce. How do you enforce that if you're not if you're not using it properly? Um that's something I hadn't even thought about. Yeah. Well this is one of the problems when when you have people going on the internet and seeing that for a small nominal amount of money some website will get you your trademark. Yeah, nominal amount of money to get the trademark is fine, but if you read the fine print they're saying we're not lawyers and we're not giving you legal advice. Well, what I'm talking about are the sorts of things that a lawyer would look at. And I've had numerous clients. In fact, I, I don't want to go into the details, but I had one young woman who uh, I was, it was very affecting because she, she burst into tears because she thought she had gone on one of these websites, registered what she thought was her, her trademark. And when I looked at what she had done, uh, I did a search. There was no trademark. It was an intent to use, meaning that she had a certain period of time to register it. And that's all she was doing was, was preserving it. And then she had blown the deadline because she thought it was a trademark. She didn't think it was an intent to use. So she had wasted all that money and not had a trademark. And that's the sort of thing that, that we as lawyers try to uh, instill in people is that, you know, there are no shortcuts. When you're protecting yourself, you have to do it in a thorough way. And finally, patents. You know, you're talking about design patents. You're talking about utility patents. Those are the ones that generally speaking are the ones that developers are going to be using the design of the of code and the, and the application that the code represents, the uh, utility, the use of the application that the code represents. The, the takeaway there, I'm not going to go into this. This could be a, a whole hour on itself, and I'm not going to do that. But one sentence I'm going to say about that, which is the United States Supreme Court has consistently scaled back the protections for web applications, uh, code, the things that you develop. So the idea that you're going to be able to get those kinds of patents for what your listeners do, that's becoming more and more difficult. Not impossible, but more and more difficult. Okay. That's that's interesting. Um, I'm sure we have people that are are building new things or building their own things. Might want to look into that more. Speaking of United States law, how do international intellectual property laws intersect with U.S. laws? Well, th there I really have a great answer for you because you know everybody has has some gripe about how the government works. This is one area where the government did a phenomenal job, I must tell you. There is something called WIPO, World Intellectual Property uh, Organization. 
and it has a lot of different uh, moving parts and a lot of things that it does. One of the things, I'll just give you an example, is they um, deal with domains, web, web domains that are violative of someone else's trademark. Now, normally we don't think of a domain as violating a trademark as such. And so using a domain that has someone else's name in it might not technically be a trademark violation according to what the circumstances are as such in the normal way we think of trademarks but it could be cyber squatting and it, it could it could be a domain violation that the world intellectual property organization is going to investigate and uh, determine using the uniform domain dis uh, name dispute resolution procedure which is the udrp so the concept is that if you are using a domain to create confusion there is a mechanism to deal with that through this organization. Second thing is something called the Madrid Protocol. And the Madrid Protocol is a way that all these countries have gotten together. And I'd say you're talking about much of the developed world has gotten together and signed this protocol. And what it means is that if you go, if you're an American, for example, and you go to the USPTO, the US Patent and Trademark Office, and you are registering your trademark, you should be able to then have that registration also apply in other countries. Now, there's a procedure, different forms, there's filing fees, you know, it's more involved than just having it registered here in America. But the key thing is that you don't have to go to those countries to do it, uh, which is the way it used to be. You, you can do it through our government and they can do it in other countries through their registration process and, and do it in reverse. So it's a very, very good system. And it's one of those systems that's sort of the future, I think, of law, where you're not just crossing state borders, but you're crossing nation borders. And we're that's really awesome. Yeah, and and we have my, my firm has actually done done some of this, and uh, and we've actually enforced, you know, through the UDRP and, and and some of those things, and we've also dealt with the Madrid Protocol. And I got to tell you, uh, it's impressive that they were able, this many countries were able to sort of get together and agree on something that would help every business in every one of those countries. And it's really something that where we should applaud government. Now, as a government employee, I. I understand that. <laughs> <laughs> Good, talking to the right guy. Yeah, no, I, 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 I get you there. Um, so we, you know, we had another question here, and this is kind of something we ran into. Uh, I don't know, BJ, it's been what five or six months at this point. Yeah, yeah. Um, this was this was a website that I built, and you were hosting. Yeah, for a friend of ours, and it it's WordPress, and so what happens to WordPress is that it gets breached. You know, WordPress is my favorite web-based remote shell, and uh, <laughs> yeah, so it, it got breached uh, through an anti-spam plugin, and somebody used it to put up uh, knockoff purses, mm. you know, for sale. And so we we didn't see that that was going on, and then we got an email about it, and it was like, hey, take this down. We know, you know. And it was from, you know, it's from a law office. It's like, we know this is the result of a breach. So, you know, here's your, I forget the exact wording, but here's your fair warning. Of course, you know, heck, that was kind of nice that somebody caught that and, you know, like let us know that there was a problem. So we, you know, turned around and fixed it pretty quick. Um, but what should developers do uh, when they get a cease and desist or something similar from a corporate attorney in regards to a website that they manage? Well, like, I mean, it's, it's, 
it's not a long stretch for me to say that you should hire a lawyer who uh, practices in this area because every one of these is unique and they have and they're they're the obvious legal precedents that are being discussed might not be the only legal precedents that the people have to to understand going beyond that though your example of somebody having gray market goods knockoff goods you know that letter should be taken seriously and if you actually are involved in in uh, selling those things you could be brought into a massive federal lawsuit and the damages could be unbelievable so we've kind of seen those in in action and i would say you should take them seriously but going beyond that the the more that that is an unusual situation in in my experience the more typical situation is a uh, digital millennium copyright act DMCA takedown notice. And that's interesting. And I think your listeners might find this relevant because, you know, it's, there is a lot of misconceptions about what is the DMCA and how does it work. In essence, um, the DMCA says that in the digital world, we want to uh, protect copyright, but we don't want to destroy and undermine the ISP the website host, that sort of person, the one who's in the middle of this, by having them deal with successive infringement lawsuits just because something that was on their site or that they sold uh, was an infringement of copyright. Because if we allow that, we'll shut down the whole internet. It's it's not workable. The way the law sees it, you know, if you have a website and someone's putting up uh, videos or things like that, as long as you're not involved in creating the video or editorializing on the video, editing it, uh, things like that, why should you be brought in to a lawsuit just because somebody else infringed when they created that video? So the concept is that there is a, a, an immunity, admittedly it's a limited immunity, for certain types of ISPs and website hosts from contributory infringement of third parties' acts. Uh, so long as you as you uh, adhere to the protocols of the, of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. One of the things you need to do is take it down. Uh, and this is the misconception. People think that it has to come down and stay down just because somebody alleged that uh, there was a violation of copyright. That's not true. While it may be that in practice, if you're dealing with thousands of, of videos and things, it just doesn't make sense for you to put it up and deal with the potential problems, you know, just take it down and there'll be another hundred before day's end to replace it. And that may be a utilitarian reason why you keep it down. But the, but the statute itself does not say that. The statute itself says it's a very short window, something like 10 to 14 days for, for the person who's saying this is infringing to then go forward with a lawsuit. And you could even have a counterfiling in which somebody files and says, no, that that I'm giving you a counter notice that what this person said in their notice was incorrect. And so the point is that the DMCA takedown notice, the fact that it's going down is the first word, not the last word. And um, the, that material could go right back up again if, in fact, it's there's no enforcement action, uh, legal enforcement action as such, and, and there's no activity beyond the notice. And I should add one more thing, which is super important for your audience to listen to, and that is there is liability if you if you issue a DMCA notice, a takedown notice, and you had no basis to do it. And that's super important. So if you're doing this for a different reason than you actually know it's infringing, you're creating a lot of problems for yourself. And there's all sorts of, of uh, language in the statute uh, to, to prevent just that sort of thing. 
So if I understand what you're saying correctly, if someone says, hey, you're infringing and they're, you're actually not, they know you're not, and it's just, I want you to take your stuff down so that I can promote my stuff without competition, that, they that's can... A problem. That's a big problem, and they can be liable. There can be real liability for doing... It, it's, mm-hmm. it, the, law, the law considers that something along the lines of bad faith, and, and it's taken seriously. I'm glad that is. I think that that definitely should be because, you know, there's there could be a lot of abuse of that DMCA if that wasn't in there. When you think about it, the Internet is one of the triumphs of our age. It, it is a massive, massive utility, essentially, which is not regulated as a utility. The government does not run it. Mm-hmm. There are people who uh, volunteer to keep the internet not just flowing, but to have it be robust, to be sure that that information can move along the internet, where they're not even being paid to do that. They're just they're just cooperating in creating this massive communication web. Part of what the government is doing when it passes the Digital Millennium Copyright Act is saying we're not the police of your content. You're the police of your content in the first instance. If you need us to help you enforce it, you come to court, that's fine. But it's not like we're trolling the internet to find people who are uh, infringing on copyright. That is self-policing. That is your obligation to find people who are violating your rights and take the initial steps under the DMCA. Once Mm -hmm. that's done, then you can avail yourself of the courts. Uh, Circling all the way back around to our beginning conversation, you know, that's what a scrum team does. They are a self-policing, self-regulating group. And our, our final question kind of actually has to do with something you've already mentioned about people volunteering their time and helping out. What's the best way for developers to sort of make sense of open source licenses, especially when evaluating components to use in an application? Well, you know, when you're talking about open source, again, one of the misconceptions that people have is that it's all the same. That essentially open source means free, I can do whatever I want, and there are no residual rights that the developer of the open source source code has. And that is not true. It's an oversimplification. The fact is that the you're you're dealing with certain open source code where certain parts of it can be utilized without a proprietary right in the developer and other parts cannot. Where when you create new applications, new things with this source code, there could be residual rights that the original developer of this of the open source code has and so the question is is it weak or strong is is it uh, permissive or strict these are are legal terms for the ways in which you can utilize or not utilize it do you have to for example put in copyright uh, notice protection on this and things along those lines and i think that the big part of this the the thing that that is really important is to focus on not just whether you can use the open source code for your own purposes, but the sale of it, the way in which it is being sold, let's say on the internet, whether that raises another level of permission that you have to have from the original developer such that you can protect it 
through copyright. Uh, example being, let's say I use open source code and I create this wonderful um, application or website or whatever, and then I copyright the application, I copyright the website. What exactly am I copywriting? And do I have complete rights in that copy, in that, in that application or, or end product? Or are there residual rights that others have that I may not even be aware of that where I might even have the copyright registration go through by mistake? The government might, might say it may not have asked all the questions they need to ask or, or, or caught it. But does that really mean that I own it? Or that the person I'm selling it to, that I'm licensing it to, for example, has a complete license and they can just use it with impunity. Or that they can then take it and create something else with it, a variation on it, without getting permission. And so I guess the, the, the key, what I'm really talking about here is you must look at the specific terms and conditions by which that source code is being used and not ignore the conditions that that are incumbent upon people who are using this who are developing it developing things with it very important guys gary has been kind enough to come on the show and share his expertise i'll be honest even had will and i both gone full med student we would not have been able to cover half the material that gary has shared with us we do want to point out that uh, something Gary said earlier, this is for educational purposes and shouldn't be considered legal advice. Our aim here has been to hit on some of the most relevant legal issues that developers face and may not fully understand. I know Will and I both have a much clearer picture of almost everything. I felt the whole time I should be typing up notes like I was sitting in a classroom while he was talking. I learned so much. Gary, we really want to thank you for coming on the show. Well, thank you very much. And, yeah. you know, I, as you can tell, I, I hope it's come across. I have a tremendous respect for developers. My son is a developer. You know, I really think that what you do is fascinating and it's really on the side of the future. I can't give legal advice without being retained, obviously, but my website is uh, GDN Law, Gary David Nancy That pretty much wraps us up. Before Will gets into tricks of the trade, we want to invite everyone in the Nashville area out to Bar Camp Nashville Conference. Bar Camp Nashville is a free annual gathering of the local tech community to learn, share, and connect. Yeah, it's a day for sharing your passions and discoveries and exploring new interests. Barcamp is a user-generated unconference allowing anyone to participate as a presenter, organizer, or volunteer. It's an opportunity for those who found success and failure to share their experiences and learnings with others to help grow and strengthen the Nashville tech community. This year, it will be held October 21st from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. at the Tech Hill Commons. That's the same building as Nashville Software School, by the way. There will also be an after party. Yeah, Will and I, along with the Junior Developer Toolbox crew, will be there at our booth and also recording interviews in the podcast lounge. Follow the link in the show notes to register and vote for the talks that you want to see. So, Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? Well, uh, I'm going to do something a little a little odd, I guess. And that that is to drive home the point that panic is kind of lethal. It's dangerous, especially if the situation has legal or health ramifications. Um, you know, I had that, that incident with the snake Friday night. And, you know, the thing is, is it was not, you know, it was not a dangerous 
snake, but I could have injured myself had I assumed that it was and freaked out and, you know, it would have been a great way to fall and hit my head. And I think a lot of people have very similar reactions to getting a communication from a law office that they do to suddenly finding a snake in the bathroom. You know, there's the shock, there's the fear, there's this this panic, and then they flail around and they end up hurting themselves. And I just want to reiterate the point that the, the lawyer is there to fix, you know, they're getting paid to fix a problem for their client. They're not getting paid to create a problem for you. If you can remember that when you're having these interactions and if you're having interactions with other professionals as well and you know other other capacities, you'll realize that it's a lot easier to deal with them you know, from that angle as opposed to a fear based, you know, panic based approach. And you might just find that, hey, you know, they're doing their thing, you're doing yours and just a slight change in behavior on, you know, gets rid of the problem and everybody's fine. And uh, that's pretty much all I got. Thank you. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Look for us each week on Facebook Live before we record each episode. Thanks for listening. See you next time.